0: Welcome to the May 11th edition of the Angus Beef Bulletin Audio, where we feature stories from our Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. I'm Shauna Hermel, editor of the Angus Beef Bulletin, and I'll be hosting you for this edition. We hope you'll go online and see all of the stories, along with the extra information and resources that are provided within those. You can find them at www.angusbeefbulletin.com. Forward slash extra. And if you have any suggestions for stories that you'd like us to cover in upcoming months, please give us an email at abbeditorialangus.org at or you can call into the office here at 816 383 5200. This edition is packed full of stories that have to do with animal health and getting your pasture renovated after we've had some droughts and um, mud, so from one extreme to the other, uh, but potentially how we can get those pastures back into shape and increase our forage supply, which we know is the most cost-effective way to be able to feed our cow herds. So let's start with our lead story on the front page. How Grazing Management Can Propel Your Profit Angus University Webinar Discusses Key Grazing Management Strategies by Briley Richard of the American Angus Association. Grass is vital to producers' cattle and profitability. With factors like stocking rates, input costs, and soil vigor all playing a part in pasture management, how do cattlemen decide where to focus to optimize use of this resource? We're not going out there trying to change what you've already got, says Hugh Aljo, Director of Producer Relations with the Noble Research Institute. We first need to make good use of what exists, and then, and only then, cost-effectively fill forage gaps of quantity and quality. Aljo explains how to make better use of existing ranch resources and improve overall grazing practices and gear up for grazing, an Angus University webinar that's now available online and you can find a link to that webinar within the story on our front page. Two factors in grazing management are stocking rate and carrying capacity and they regularly get confused, Aljo explains. Stocking rate measures forage demand or the number of animals grazing while carrying capacity is the amount of forage supply being grown What's needed is balance between the two. The number one rule of grazing management is to actively manage the stocking rate at or below carrying capacity, Aljo says. What this does is maintain a measure of flexibility within our operation. Aljo explains that for every year a pasture sits overstocked. Typically due to fluctuating rainfall, it takes about two years to recover. He proposes the solution of setting a stocking rate for approximately 80% of average rainfall, leading to a more manageable overstocking of about one in six years. If you're doing a really good job with your breeding program, a good job with your nutrition program, and you like the livestock you have, you can carry your own calf crop later into the season to find a better economic marketing opportunity, Aljo says. While the simple solution to a depleting forage supply may be to supplement with hay, this turns into an expensive practice. Aljo recommends providing intentional grazing allocations to prolong the grazing season. We can be a lot more effective if we give them allocations for a day, several days, a week at a time, Aljo says. Then we're more efficient, not only with our land resources, but also managing those allocations further into the year. To dive deeper into Aljo's presentation, visit https colon forward slash forward slash B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash 40 K-I-Y-H-L. That link is in the article on www.angusbeefbulletin.com forward slash extra. It'll be on the front page, so uh, much easier to go to that page and link. To learn more about Angus University webinars and other educational resources, you can visit www.angus.org forward slash university. All right, so that wraps up the first story, and we also uh, encourage you to go to the website to access the other articles on that front page. We have our news and notes column, uh, which has the first invitation to our Angus convention this November. Uh, as well as the introduction for a new regional manager in Colorado and Nebraska, uh, and an invitation to a 150-year celebration of the American Angus Association. We also have a fun story. Well, I guess it might be fun. Um, Paige Nelson, our field editor in Idaho, uh, interviews and, and talked to um, Ty Bird about some of the California snow issues that they had. And he's got some... Um, pictures that he provided that's just incredible, so we hope you'll go to that page and check it out. From our management page, let's look at how low-stress cattle handling has a domino effect to improve health, productivity, and more. Veterinarians share their thoughts and three tips. This is by Amy Robinson with Valley Vet Supply. Aiming to make the most of spring processing efforts this year Low stress handling presents a domino effect. By minimizing handling stress, you will see improvements in immune response, eating, and producing. Calves go back to eating and gaining weight. Cows go back to eating and growing their calf. Cattle respond better to vaccines, says Julia Herman, beef cattle specialist veterinarian with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. For anyone unfamiliar with the term and practice, low-stress handling is one part of stocksmanship that incorporates the understanding of cattle's natural behaviors and the handler using that knowledge to positively affect cattle movement and management. It's responding to their movement, anticipating what the animal will do next, says Herman. The Beef Quality Assurance, or BQA program, teaches about this principle in preventing stress and disease in cattle, which improves cattle welfare and productivity. While the practice of excellent stockmanship may have been brought more to the forefront in recent years, the skills are something that have often been passed down through generations of family ranches. Herman remembers watching her husband and his dad work cattle years ago. It was like magic, she says. They could sort cattle without making a sound. I think there are families where this level of stockmanship has been passed down from generation to generation and has taken a couple of high-profile people like Temple Grandin and Bud Williams to really bring low-stress handling and stockmanship to the forefront. They've been really good champions of that type of handling. When we are stressed, we're more likely to succumb to a cold or change in behavior. The same thing rings true for cattle. They can experience health implications, even become moody, and the effects can influence generations. Tony Hawkins, Valley Vet Supply Technical Services Veterinarian, shares how. Anything we could do to minimize stress in these animals is good. One, because of animal husbandry, and two, because it will actually improve their response to vaccines, he says. Low stress handling is good for you, and is good for them. Long thought to be true, science has confirmed how cattle handling directly affects cattle behavior, in addition to health. Interestingly, low-stress handling methods affect mothering behavior of today, plus the growth and behavior of her future offspring. Herman explains, We're learning more about mothering behavior and how minimizing stress, such as practicing low-stress handling with a dam, in addition to her genetics, can impact multiple generations of animals. That's because stress hormones circulate throughout the blood system. If you're following good stockmanship, the heifer will have a better attitude and be calmer in stressful situations, and that can follow down lines. Good behavior cows can pass that behavior on to multiple generations. I think people have known that, but we're finally getting scientific proof of that. Here's three tips to implement when working cattle. Number 1. Take advantage of their flight zones to move cattle. Picture an imaginary oval around a single animal. Your placement encourages them to start or stop movement. When you enter the animal's or the group's flight zone, it encourages forward movement, Herman explains. When you retreat from the flight zone, it signals the animal to stop moving. These concepts can be used whether you are handling cattle on foot, horseback, in a vehicle, or when the cattle are in a chute. If we provide good directions to handlers and the cattle through low-stress handling, we improve how the animals respond during handling events. Number 2. When working cattle and you see a hiccup, it's okay to pause, take a minute, and investigate. If you notice cattle are no longer moving smoothly through a specific part of the facility, pause and investigate the holdup. Really importantly, producers need to think about the design of their facility and overall quality of the facility, Hawkins emphasizes, because that plays a big role in how these animals move. Number 3. Prioritize training and have the right people for the right job. I think that a huge thing is making sure that our people are trained in the jobs that we are expecting them to do, Herman says. Stockmanship training creates confidence in our caretakers and improves human safety around cattle. Also, it's important to be open to changing roles of people during processing events so that they feel more comfortable and effective. Maybe someone is pushing cows but would rather give vaccines or vice versa. And when they get tired, maybe we need to switch people out every couple of hours. This will improve the human's experience, which will also improve the cattle's experience. At the end of the day, Herman asks, what can the producer control? They can control the products they're using, the facility they're running animals through, and they can control how they are handling the animals going through it all to set that cow or calf up for a positive experience and the most productive life possible. Education, resources, and training are easily accessible for producers to help further steward the industry we're all passionate about. There's a lot of training available online. that covers stockmanship, cattle health, and more, and I would recommend that everybody take advantage of that. It's free and available at bqa.org, says Hawkins. To help ensure your herd's health and more, visit www.valleyvet.com. And as an editor's note, our author for that story, Amy Robinson, is a communication specialist for Valley Vet Supply. Other articles on our management page include uh, an article on precautions for when you are doing weed control by Heather Smith Thomas and... Um, Honestly, I probably would have read that article to you, but I couldn't pronounce the source's name. So hopefully that will intrigue you enough to go online to our management page at www.angusbeefbulletin.com forward slash extra um, to access that story. And maybe you can tell me how to pronounce his name. Um, Also, we have a story on rebuilding uh, the cattle herd. Starts with rebuilding your pastures and that article is provided by Corteva and they provide some really good uh, helpful advice there as well Let's move on to our nutrition page and Heather gave us an article on silage Which we will read silage for beef cattle tips for putting up high quality corn silage and reducing losses Silage is a common feed for dairy cattle, but it is also used in many beef operations. Silage can be created from nearly any forage crop, including grasses and legumes, but corn is often used because it is the most energy-dense. Putting up a crop as silage is a way to preserve forage quality through fermentation in an anaerobic environment, preventing growth of detrimental, spoilage-causing microorganisms. Corn silage has a lot of nutrient value if harvested and stored correctly, according to Stephen Hines, University of Idaho Extension Educator in Jerome County. The varieties bred for grain production have shorter stalks. Most of the plant energy goes into forming ears. Silage varieties tend to be taller with more plant mass, but still put on a good ear, says Hines. In the West, we tend to have mostly drive-over piles. And in the Midwest and East most farmers use upright silos. For a drive-over pile it's best if you have a hard clean area like concrete or asphalt rather than just soil which creates contamination and loss. A drive-over or bunker type pile needs to be properly covered after the silage is put in to minimize dry matter loss. Good silage is put up with 65 to 70 percent moisture According to Hines, 68% to 70% moisture in the corn plant is considered ideal. Moisture content is crucial to the ensiling process. He advises producers be aware of when the corn crop is reaching that level or have someone from a custom harvest company or seed company help check moisture levels. Silage that is put up too wet, meaning cut too early in the season, typically has ears that have not finished developing and the starch level or energy level isn't high enough. Even worse, wet silage tends to produce more undesirable bacteria and bad molds, he warns. Silage that has been put up too dry is hard to pack adequately, says Hines. It's too fluffy and doesn't pack very well. Dry matter losses increase because it's hard to get the pile to ferment properly. You can't get the air all pushed out of it. Hines did a study several years ago looking at packing density of silage piles across southern Idaho and found that most silage was barely packed enough, and in some cases, not enough. You want to build the pile fast, he says. Ideally, you'd make a pile within a day or two and immediately get it covered. You don't want to expose to air very long because you start getting dry matter losses immediately. The top layer must be sealed off to protect it from air and oxidizing and keep off any rain or snow. Corn silage should sit at least three or four months for the fermentation process to be fully complete before it's broken into and fed. We call it a Christmas feed because it takes about that long from harvest, says Hines. Though some people start feeding sooner because they need the feed, it's better to wait, he explains. At four months, most of the fermentation has happened, but full fermentation and stabilization occurs at six months. Once it is properly fermented, it will keep for several years, if it was put up well and protected. It keeps its nutrient quality longer than baled hay, he notes. When you start to feed a pile, do it strategically, because once you open it up, it starts to deteriorate in quality. Manage the face of the pile so the exposed surface gets used daily. When you build the pile, make it of proper size so you can feed material from across the entire open face each day, Heinz advises. This ensures the next day's feed is relatively new. You don't have some that's exposed to the air for a long time. Heinz recommends feeding off about 6 inches of the entire face each day. This keeps the face ahead of oxygen's effects. Once the silage comes into contact with oxygen, it starts to get stale. You don't want your daily feeding stale, says Heinz. As oxygen penetrates into the pile, it reinvigorates the aerobic organisms. They start digesting the energy components of the feed, and the pile loses dry matter. Even if you do everything correctly, you'll still have about 10% dry matter loss. If a pile has a thousand tons of corn silage, you've lost a hundred tons. That's a lot of money lost, and money spent from the time the ground was worked until the pile was covered, he says. If you haven't put up silage before, you need to not only figure out how many tons you think you'll need, but also add some additional acres to make up for dry matter loss. As an editor's note, our author Heather Smith Thomas is a freelance writer and cattlewoman from Salmon, Idaho. And our other stories in our health and nutrition page for this edition include a BRD battle plan um, that provides the two-step approach to building immunity. Uh, Beringer-Engelheim provides that news release. And then we also have an article on minimizing waste and maximizing genetics through management, um, which is an article provided by our certified Angus beef team. Our three articles on the marketing page of this edition are really strong, so I hope you'll go to the website and take a peek with in, in the cattle markets, Elliot Dennis provides a peek at how inflation is affecting how our feeder calf prices compare to input costs and kind of what that does to our overall profitability. Troy Marshall provides an installment of the link and the article that we're going to read here this morning is going to be on live weight gain and carcass weight, the effect on cost of gain and margin. Um, a really interesting take that I think will get some new information into hands of our producers here. Uh, and this article is provided by Warren Rushi of South Dakota State University. Most cattle feeders measure performance costs and returns in terms of live weight regardless of marketing method. Using live weight as the yardstick has the advantage of being simple to understand and easy to relate to purchase and sale weights. However, more cattle each year are marketed using carcass weight to determine value, sometimes combined with grid premiums and discounts. Can we use the same assumptions for growth and cost of gain when when marketing methods differ? Live weight gain and carcass weight gain are not parallel. It is tempting to assume that the relationship between carcass gain and live weight gain is equivalent to dressing percentage, approximately 62% to 64%. That assumption is not correct. As cattle are fed for additional days, dressing percentage increases. Lighter weight feeder cattle might only yield in the mid-50% range, while very fat, finished cattle may have dressing percentages greater than 65%. Figure 1 illustrates research conducted at South Dakota State University and published by Bruins et al. in 2004. The carcass weights on the x-axis are in kilograms and are less than what is common today, but the general concept still holds. Within a population of cattle with similar genetics, dressing percentage increases as weight increases and we're sure you're going to want to go to the website at www.angusbbulletin.com forward slash extra to be able to look at that figure and, and the ones that follow here in the article. So, in order for that change in dressing percentage to occur, the amount of carcass weight gain as a percentage of an animal's live weight gain must be greater than the dressing percentage measured at slaughter. These differences between the proportion of live weight gain contained in the carcass is termed carcass transfer and can be as much as 80% or more as animals put on more fat. For example, suppose a 1,000-pound steer yields 55% or 550 pounds of carcass weight. Feed that same steer to 1,600 pounds and the dressing percentage might be 65%. That steer's carcass would weigh 1,040 pounds. Increasing live weight by 600 pounds resulted in 490 pounds of carcass weight gain. If we divide 490 by 600, we can see that the carcass transfer, in this case, was 81.7%. How does this affect feed efficiency? Cattle feeders typically discuss feed efficiency in terms of the amount of feed required per pound of gain, usually on a live animal basis. However, Live weight efficiency might not be the ideal measure if we are marketing cattle on a carcass weight basis. Researchers at the University of Nebraska examined results from five years of data on nearly 2,400 yearling steers with an endpoint target of 0.5 inches of fat to examine the relationship between live versus carcass measures of feed efficiencies. Figure 2 shows their analysis of how different measures of output affected efficiency. The amount of feed required for each pound of gain increases linearly as days on feed increase across the feeding studies. That should come as no surprise to cattle feeders as that is a common occurrence as cattle get fatter with more time on feed. The carcass-based feed efficiency curve shows a different response. The penalty for increased days on feed is not as severe, because while live average daily gain decreases as the cattle are fed longer, carcass daily gain changes much more slowly. These relationships reinforce the point that the ideal length of a feeding period depends on how cattle are marketed. There is a greater margin of safety for extending days on feed when cattle are marketed on a carcass weight basis compared to selling cattle live. Determining the ideal marketing time for finished cattle is not always a straightforward process. Market conditions, both slaughter and feeder cattle prices, feed cost, pin conditions, and cattle performance all influence endpoint in decisions. Grid marketing adds a further wrinkle, as extended days on feed result in greater carcass weight and potentially improved quality grades, but at the risk of discounts for yield grades and heavyweight carcasses. Working with a nutritionist who can help feeders interpret closeouts and available carcass information can help fine-tune marketing decisions. As an editor's note, Warren Rushi is an assistant professor and a South Dakota State University Extension feedlot specialist. That wraps up the articles that we were going to read for you for this edition of the Angus Beef Bulletin Audio. We hope you'll go online and check out the website, Give us any feedback at abbeditorial at angus.org or give us a call at 816-383-5200. Thank you and enjoy your day. We hope you'll also visit our Angus at Work podcast, available for download uh, at any of the places where you normally would download your podcast.